Tonight we're going to be looking at one of the, the Psalms of David, and particularly we'll look at Psalm 13, Psalm 13 tonight. Psalm 13, and a sermon that I've titled, Lord, Are You Still There? Lord, Are You Still There? Psalm 13. I shared a couple of these verses with the staff here at the school on Friday. Uh, as, as I was preparing for tonight, the Lord just led me to, to share some of those uh, verses with them on Friday. And I'd like to draw your attention to this Psalm of David tonight. One of the reasons I love the life of David is because there's so much in his life that every one of us can relate to. Not that I've experienced the same circumstances that David has experienced, and I honestly wouldn't even want to, but I found myself at times calling out to God the same way he does. At times I find myself reading the Psalms and wonder, when did I start keeping a journal? Because it feels like I'm reading exactly what I've been thinking. It's almost as if God knew that we would need these words today. And so he went ahead and included them in scripture. In every trial of life, there is something in God's word that can bring you comfort and reassure your heart that God is still in control. And this is why looking at David's life is so encouraging because God has revealed to us so much about this man, the highs and and the lows, as a means of showing us the realities of this human life And how we're to navigate certain circumstances by leaning upon God. In this particular psalm, David was in desperate need of the Lord's help. David was going through a a season of his life where where it seemed as if the, the light at the end of the tunnel was turned off. Or it was not visible, at least, from where he was. He didn't know what to think. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know if God was still with him and with what he was going through. He didn't know if God was still there. He was tired. He was depressed. He was discouraged. He was feeling completely defeated. Everything he did seemed to make matters worse. The things he thought would help actually made things terrible. No matter what he did, nothing at all seemed to improve his situation. Now, you may be here thinking tonight that I can replace David's name with yours as we go through the psalm. And you might as well be reading about your own life here because it's, at times, it's, it's almost as if God is, is prepared a psalm just for us and just for the season of life that we're going through. Maybe you're here and, and what we're going to talk about tonight is exactly what you're going through, is exactly how you feel, especially as the first couple of verses of the psalm are going to show. Uh, maybe you've been spending a lot of your days weeping. Maybe you've been spending a lot of your days in frustration as you've pleaded with the Lord, telling him that you're at the end of your rope, that you have been stretched to the very limit that you can go to, and it is reaching the point of to being too much. Maybe you've been patient for so long and there's nothing left for you to give. Your strength is fading fast and you need to hear from the Lord right away and you need a little bit of reprieve from the pressures and the stress that you've been dealing with. You've done everything that can be done, but nothing seems to work as you try and take care of matters on your own. You don't know what else to do and in desperation, you may be begging and pleading for God to help and to give you some answers and to offer some sort of comfort for the situation that you're in. If you're not there right now, I'm sure there's been a point in your life where you've thought this, where you've been stretched to the max and you can't do anything else on your own. And even if you haven't been there, you're bound to get there at some point and there's a good possibility that it may be right around the corner. And before you think that these circumstances only happen to immature believers, if you're thinking you're way too spiritually mature to face a season of distress and grief as what David is going through, this happens to every single person. I don't care if you've been saved for 50 years, you're still prone to have seasons where you're left feeling deserted and discouraged. Maybe you're struggling with a long, drawn-out disease. Maybe you've been dealing with a financial problem that you just can't get under control. Maybe you've been struggling with grief. Maybe you've been struggling with resentment. 
And no matter how hard you try to let these matters go and to not think about these things, nothing seems to be working. Maybe you've been struggling with worry. And no matter how many stress balls you've destroyed, worry still consumes you. Before you know it, you're going to find yourself just like David, who eventually as we're going to see here at the beginning of Psalm 13, cried out to God in desperation. The man after God's own heart was broken and wondering if God was still present with him and if God had forgotten him. The context here in Psalm 13 is David had been on the run from Saul. Even though David had been anointed king, he was still a fugitive. He was still being chased by the sitting king. After defeating Goliath, the people were praising David more than they were praising Saul. And they were saying that David had slain his ten thousands while Saul only his thousands. And this made, as you can imagine, Saul incredibly jealous. And he was convinced that from that moment, as much as David is being praised, that David would then seek to take his kingdom. And it, the Bible tells us that from that point, that Saul eyed David, eventually wanting him dead. So David was forced to become a fugitive. He couldn't even stay in his own home country. He was forced to be on the run and to seek refuge wherever he could find it. And David would eventually put together this small army of 600 men and 600 men who were loyal, 600 men that he could trust, 600 men that were sworn to protect him and offered him some sort of relief from the craziness that he was dealing with as he was on the run from Saul. And they eventually settled in a place called Ziklag. When he and his men had left at one point for a military mission, they returned to find that Ziklag had been burned. And as they had set up their home there, they had families, they had wives, they had children, and they came back and it had all been burned down and their families had been taken captive by the Amalekites. And listen to how it's described in, in 1 Samuel chapter 30. I know we're, we're in uh, Psalm 13, but for the sake of context, you need to understand uh, what was going on and what were the circumstances behind, um, behind David writing this. So I want you to listen to what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and I'm going to read the first six verses here in 1 Samuel chapter 30 to let you know what the circumstances were behind the writing of Psalm 13. So 1 Samuel 30, and verses 1 through 6, the Bible says, And it came to pass, when David and his men were come to Ziklag, so this is after their returning from this military campaign, on the third day it says that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him, and this is a hard, gut-wrenching verse, it says, with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed. Notice this, it says, For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. David was devastated. And now, facing death from his own men. The army of 600 men that had basically sworn allegiance to David, that were loyal to him, that were people that he could trust, that were going to protect him. Again, it says there in verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 30, it says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him. They came back and found that their city, their homes were burned. Their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. Someone was to blame for this. And naturally, David would be the one that they would point the finger at. Of course, it was his fault. David had gone, though, from being a hero, the hero that had slain the giant Goliath, to the man responsible now for women and children being carried away captives and families torn apart, homes burned down. And these men, these 600 men, were prepared 
to take out their frustrations by stoning the one that they had basically sworn allegiance to to protect with their lives. And in desperation, David calls out to God in Psalm 13. Notice what this psalm says. Short psalm, just six verses, but notice what the Bible says. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Four times in the first two verses of this psalm, David asks the question, how long? How long, how long, how long, how long? Can you sense his urgency here? David had been on the run from Saul for nine years. Nine years. He'd been anointed king, but he wasn't the king. He'd been on the run from the present sitting king for nine years. Does it make sense that he would ask this question, how long, Lord? Four times. Can you imagine waiting years to get an answer from God? An answer that you thought was a certainty, a guarantee. He's anointed king. Samuel came, looked at all the sons of Jesse, anointed David as the king of Israel. The answer was there. God had spoken to him. And yet he's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm sure you've all asked this question at some point. How long, Lord? And if you have children, you've definitely heard this question asked when you're on a road trip. Are we there yet? This is the kid's version of how long? How long do we have to wait? How much longer until we get there? I look at David's questions here and I think that this is a perfect picture of every single believer. At some point, we've all cried out to God and will cry out to God, how long? How long do we have to wait? How long, God, before you answer? How long before you do something? How long before we have to wait? How long before we know what we should be doing? How long? And the longer it goes without an answer, the more we ask. Hence, David asking four times in two verses. And what makes matters worse is that the time seems to slow to a crawl the longer God delays in answering us. It may only be a couple of days or even a week, but that week can feel like a year when we're waiting for this answer to come from God, when we're praying night and day trying to get God to give us some clarity on this matter. Time flies when everything is going fine, when there's no pressing matter. But when trouble is upon us, when we're in the middle of a crisis, when we're stressed, it seems to just slow to a crawl, almost relishing the fact that we're in misery and desperation and wanting to keep us there as long as possible. This can often lead us to be irrational. And I think this is what we're seeing with David in the first verse. Notice again what it says there in verse number one. He says, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? What would ever lead David to ask God if he had forgotten him? And if he would forget him forever? How is it possible for God to ever forget anyone, especially David? Can the all-knowing God fail in memory in any way? Can a loving Heavenly Father forget about His beloved children? Listen to what we read in Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. God says, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. God says, 
Can a mother forget her child? child that she gives birth to, a child that she nurtures, a child that she cares for every single day. Even if that child is, is old and out of the house and has a family on his own. It's Mother's Day. Mothers, you ever forget your children? Could you? I mean, aside from, from illness and, and Alzheimer's and dementia and horrible things that, that just wreak havoc on your mind, can a mother forget her child? You may not remember every, every, little, every little detail about what it was like from the day they were born until they grew up to the age they are now, but you're never going to forget your child. And God says, as much as a mother will never forget their child, and even if they do, he says, his memory will never fade. We are literally, he says, as his children, graven, he says, upon the palms of his hands. Just because God delays doesn't mean that he's forgotten or that he will abandon his own. God cannot forget his own. If the Lord delays, the Lord is delaying out of love, not out of a forgetful heart. We tend to focus on the worst case scenario, and we end up often engraving our troubles in stone while writing our joys in sand. We make massive monuments and statues out of the negative things that happen in our lives while forgetting about all the good that God has done for us. We, we think about it in the moment, but then it's gone like a fleeting thought. If anyone has forgotten here, it's us, not God. David may have gone nine years without an answer from God up to this point, but God had not forgotten him. God had a, a perfect reason for delaying, but in the delay, David momentarily forgot about how good God had been to him. Now, at the end of the psalm, he's going to remember, but in the moment, at the beginning of the psalm, he's not thinking clearly. He's thinking rationally. God may not forget us, but we're quick to forget what God has done. It would take David some time, but he eventually would figure out that even in the silence that he has from God, God had indeed dealt bountifully with him. We may not always understand why God delays, but even in the delays, God is still working. Now, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but this is why I love David so much. The psalm starts with David deeply distressed, four times asking, how long, how long, how long? And he's asking some crazy questions. How can you even ask these things if you know anything about God? Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Lord, are you even there? Anyone home? And that's what he heard. Nothing. No response. Over and over he's asking David is deeply de depressed. He's convinced that God has permanently forgotten him. And then it ends with him praising God for how good God has been to him. It's remarkable to change. Look at the last verse. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. It's almost as if I'm reading an entirely different psalm. Because from where it starts in the first two verses and where it ends, we couldn't be completely polar opposite. How long, Lord? How long? How long? How long? Lord, you've, forsa you've forsaken me. You've forgotten all about me forever. You're gone. Lord, I'm going to praise you forever because of how good you are. How do we get from the beginning to the end? And I see that here in this psalm. And I, I see the irrational side of David. And then I see him thinking logically and with a sound mind at the end. And I think, boy, are we not the same. Day to day, moment to moment, week to week, we go from one extreme to the opposite extreme. Sometimes we don't know what mood we're going to be in from day to day. One day everything is fine, and you're a delight to be around. And then something happens. Someone gives you a, a dirty look. Some circumstance that was good changes. And before you know it, you might as well have a sign around your neck that says, do not disturb. Telling people to steer clear of you because today is not your day. Yesterday was different. 
Yesterday, things were going great. My coffee was made just right. They didn't mess up my order in Dunkin' Donuts. Everything was good. I was feeling good. I was on time. Today, traffic was a bear. They ruined my order at Dunkin' Donuts. It's my birthday. They forgot to give me the free donut. Whatever it is. It is just not our day. And we let everyone know, sometimes not even having to say anything, but just in how we're behaving. And here in Psalm 13, we see this with David. We see these highs and lows. We see these ups and downs. And this is why these psalms, to me, are so encouraging. Because you're seeing the honest prayers of real people. So often we treat the Bible as if it's full of people that we just cannot relate to. These people are so on a pedestal that in our lifetime, we're never going to get to where they are. And then we read this psalm and we think, you know what? Maybe David's a little bit further down. You know, maybe I can relate to this guy. Maybe my life isn't all that bad. David struggled just like we struggle. He questioned whether or not God had forgotten him. He wasn't thinking clearly. He wasn't thinking rationally. The circumstances of his life were dictating his emotions rather than the consistent hand of God in his life. God has given us these psalms to remind us that people like David are human just like us. God's delays are real. And they can lead us to not just feel forgotten, but also to feel forsaken. So David first cried out as if he's completely forgotten by God. He says, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? And then notice what he says in that second question, or rather third. Verse number one, he says, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? So it's bad enough that David feels forgotten by God. But now he feels as if God has purposely turned his face and his focus away from him. Consider how irrational this is as what David is suggesting is that God would forget but also purposely forsake one of his own. Now, I've given to you the context of where David was in his life and what frame of mind he must have been in as he's writing this. He's in a difficult stage of his life and he feels as if God basically cannot be bothered by his troubles. Forgetting is, is one thing. Forsaking is an entirely other matter. We forget people sometimes completely by accident. I'm terrible with names. I make it a point to even repeat a person's name when I first meet them. And then five minutes later, I have to ask Ruthie, what was that person's name? I'm terrible about that. We, we forget things very quickly, not on purpose, completely by accident, especially when life is busy and getting crazy and a little chaotic. But the act of forsaking, where David says, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? That is purposeful forgetfulness. Put yourself in David's shoes. He's in this relationship with God, which from his perspective, he's thinking this is a permanent relationship. And he's right. He's been spending his days as a fugitive, though. For the last nine years, he's been on the run. He's been running for his life. He's been hiding out in caves. He's been fighting battles. He's losing families. He's getting nowhere closer to the throne that he was promised to get. He was anointed king. And the thought of God forgetting and forsaking him well, starts to make sense, right? I mean, after a certain point, we can read the handwriting on the wall. If you're in David's shoes, you're anointed king, you're told by Samuel what's going to happen. He's the prophet of God. He says you are the king. You're going to be the king of Israel. And then what happens in your life is you end up having to be forced into the life of a fugitive because the sitting king is now chasing you all over the place trying to kill you. And this goes on for nine years. How many of you can honestly say that you would have stuck it out? How many of you would probably start thinking maybe there was a mistake? Maybe Samuel anointed the wrong brother. Maybe he misinterpreted the message that God gave him. Maybe God misjudged me. Maybe God thought that I was more capable than what I am. 
Maybe God underestimated Saul and his power and his resources. Maybe, 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 maybe. But after a certain point, David is questioning all of this. He starts to feel that God has led him this far to abandon him. That would never happen, right? Well, let me scare you a little before I tell you the truth. Did God forsake his only begotten son? He did, right? God forsook his only begotten son. He absolutely did. We read in Psalm 22, a very prophetic messianic psalm. Speaks of what Christ cried out from on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46, it says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A purposeful forgetfulness. The very Son of God was forsaken. God hid his face purposely from his only begotten Son. The very Son of God was forsaken. What makes you think that any of us couldn't then be forsaken? Now here's the truth. God the Father forsook his only begotten Son so that he would never have to forsake any of us. He willingly and purposely turned his face away from his only begotten Son the just, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God was forsaken so that God the Father would never have to forsake any of us. He was forsaken because the Holy God could not look upon him as he bore the entire sin of the human race upon himself on the cross. So the next time you feel as if God has forsaken you, you remember that your Savior, Jesus Christ, was forsaken for you so that God would never have to forsake you. You may not always sense God's presence when you call out to him in the midst of the trouble that you're in, but rest assured, God is always there. God not only promises never to forsake us, but he also promises never to leave us. That doesn't mean that you'll never feel forsaken. It doesn't mean like you'll never feel alone because emotions can be very fickle and it can be very tricky and they can cause us to feel as if God has abandoned us. But when we think about God rationally and with a sound mind, we can quickly remind ourselves of our eternal position in Christ Jesus as believers with God and know that we are never and will never be forsaken when we're in Christ. God's delays can lead us to feel forsaken. God's delays can also leave us feeling frustrated. Look at what it says in verse 2. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because, honestly, I don't want any of you guys to lie to me. But have you ever felt frustrated with God? Again, don't put your hand up. Some of you have been praying for the Lord to reveal the will that he has for you and you've been praying this prayer for years. And God's message doesn't seem to be clearly coming through. Maybe you know what God's will is for you, but he hasn't shown you how it's all going to happen. There are a few details that still need to be worked out and you've been praying for these specific doors to open up and these opportunities to present themselves which you figure have got to be the way that he's leading and for some reason the door keeps closing or it's not opening all the way as much as it should. And you've been wondering why. And the answer doesn't seem to come. Maybe you've been praying for a person and your prayers seem to be falling on deaf ears. And David expresses frustration here for two reasons. He's frustrated because of his own emotions and he's frustrated because of his enemies. And look at the first question again there in verse number two. He says, how long shall I take counsel in my soul having sorrow in my heart daily? David is frustrated because the problem never goes away. Every day he wakes up and it's still there. A lot of times what gives us comfort is knowing that we can go to sleep and tomorrow's a new day. And we can leave the troubles and the problems of yesterday 
yesterday. Leave him in the past and move on. You know what David says here? He says, I go to sleep and I wake up and the problems are still there. I don't get a reset. I don't get a fresh start. I'm still dealing with this. I'm still here nine years, chased, being chased, being a fugitive, running for my life. And nothing, nothing seems to be going right. There is no fresh start. Every day it's just another confirmation that I'm still not king. David wasn't getting any positive results with each passing day. He wasn't getting any clarity when more time went on. He wasn't giving a little glimpse. Okay, there's a little bit of positivity to grasp a hold of. Nothing like that. Someone has said that the biggest problem with life is that it is so daily. Whether we like it or not, Every morning we wake up, we're faced with new challenges, we're faced with new decisions, and sometimes those same challenges from yesterday are just going to present themselves again today and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year, and there's not going to be the clarity that you want to get at least right away. We wake up in the morning and we're still faced with the same problem that we were up all night thinking about. When we no longer sense God's presence, we begin focusing on everything else, which is the worst thing that you can do, which is what led David to ask the questions that he asked here in the first two verses. This opens the door for our emotions to take over. And when our emotions take over, they take us on the, world and on the worst and the wildest roller coaster rides. Any of you theme park, you like, go to, go, like going to theme parks and like adventure and riding on rides? Anyone here? I don't know, for some reason Lily enjoys that and none of, my wife or her don't like to do any of that and Lily's just a thrill seeker. I don't know where she gets it from. Bob, did you raise your hand? Do you like it? A little bit? Does anyone like going on those roller coasters that go upside down and spin around and go back? Seriously? For so many reasons, I can't do that. My stomach is just, you know, it churns inside of me just thinking about that and watching that happen. We were on vacation a month or so ago and we went to this this park and they had some small rides for the kids to go on and somehow my arm got twisted to go on this ride with Lily and I'm thinking I really don't want to go on this ride. I want my daughter to have fun so okay I'll go it can't be that bad it was you know the, the height requirement was like this it you know, should be simple enough and, and not gonna drag out for too long I got on that ride and immediately you know they pulled the bar down in front of you and I'm thinking this is not gonna go well what did I do? And it's too late. You know, once it locks, you can't get out. And started the ride. And it was one of these rides that goes in a circle. And then it goes around this track. And, of course, Lily is like spinning this thing that we're in, trying to make it go faster in a circle as we're going around a bigger circle. I'm getting dizzy just thinking about it right now. That felt like an eternity. I think it was all of about, like, 15 seconds, the entire ride. I, I kid you not. I think my face turned white. We got off the ride and I needed to hold on to something for a moment. And, and Ruthie's looking at me. She's like, are you okay? And I said, out of the two of us, why did you think it would be a good idea for me to go on that ride? I don't know what it is. I just, I can't stomach those things. Um, let me do anything else. But spinning in circles, going in a circle, going backwards, hanging upside down, your body wasn't designed to do these things. It's going to try and reject these positions and these feelings and being just thrown and whipped around like that. When you are allowing your emotions to take over, that's what it's like. That's what David was on. He was on this wild roller coaster ride where he was being flung to one side. He was being flipped upside down. He was being spun in circles and he can't think and see clearly. All he can feel is this roller coaster of emotions that he's on. And so he's questioning God here completely irrationally. Now this opens the door again for just all the wrong things to happen. No matter what you do, as you're thinking irrationally, the problem is never going to go away because you're never thinking in the right frame of mind. Even when you take time to pray, even when you take time to read your Bible and you, you fellowship with God's people, when you're still thinking with your mind and trying to focus with your emotions, 
This nagging frustration never seems to get out of your head. It has you in some emotional stranglehold that you just can't free yourself from when your emotions are driving you. And this is what David was experiencing, and this is what he's talking about here in verse number two. Again, he says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? But notice the second question. He says, How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? David has not only been told he's going to be king, but he's been anointed king. But nothing has seemed to have gone right since. He's running for his life. Now his friends have turned against him. The 600 men who were supposed to be his mighty men of valor, the men who were sworn to protect him in the worst scenarios, in the worst occasions, are now looking and considering stoning their leader. This promise of being king seems to be deferred to some future date, which in his mind, in David's mind, it's never going to come. David would be on the run from Saul for about nine years. But from when he was anointed to when he would finally become king over Israel, it would be 15 years. 15 years. So he's anointed king. He's not immediately targeted by Saul at that point. But from the day he's anointed to be the king to the day that he actually takes the throne, 15 years. Can you imagine 15 years wondering, when is this going to happen? Is it ever going to happen? Nothing seems to be going according to plan. David is the king who is forever in waiting. At one point, Saul, the current king of Israel, even sent 30,000 men against David. Sure, Samuel had anointed David to be the king of Israel, but maybe Samuel made a mistake. Maybe God changed his mind. Maybe this was just one big joke. That they were going to mock and ridicule this, this man David by anointing him king and telling him he's going to be the next king, but in reality, the joke's on him because they don't mean a thing by it. Who makes a promise and then waits 15 years to fulfill it. Was God really on David's side? Because from David's perspective, it seemed as if everyone is his enemy. Saul seemed to be prospering while David is left running for his life. Who knows what David was thinking? Maybe he started thinking that God made him this promise to him so that it was a promise that he knew God could never keep. God had good intentions, but maybe he underestimated just all the things that would be done. After all, David only had 600 men by his side. Saul had an entire army. You wonder if David was thinking about giving up. 15 years and nothing happens. Why keep fighting when defeat appears in inevitable? Saul had a kingdom. Saul had a powerful army. All David had was God. And God wasn't doing a whole lot of talking. Discouragement can hit us from many different sides and in many different ways. It makes us feel like we're in over our heads and what we're hoping for is always going to be out of reach. It was like someone was dangling that carrot of being king in front of David and it was always out of reach. Every time he reached for it, it was just pulled out of his arm's reach. You may even feel like giving into some of those feelings where it's just, it's not going to work out. And what you're hoping for is, is never going to actually happen, which is a completely natural feeling to have. David felt this way, but the good news is that it didn't end there. David felt abandoned. He felt completely forsaken, but he was actually exactly where God wanted him to be all along. David may not have been thinking clearly at first, but he was smart enough to do one thing, and that is to pray. When we look at verse number three, we see that David essentially asked the Lord for three things. Notice verse number three. It says, consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Three things, consider me, hear me, lighten mine eyes. And when you stop and think about it, this is an incredibly powerful prayer. Lord, this is what he's essentially saying. Lord, I have no hope. Please look at me. Please hear me. Please open my eyes to be able to actually see you. Now, if you've paid attention, you've noticed a shift between verse 2 and verse 3. This verse doesn't follow. Verse 3 doesn't follow the same train of thought as the first two verses. He's moving on from questioning God and God's concern for his servant. And now he's asking the Lord for help. 
But he's not crying out for help as a desperate man who is fearful for his life. He's actually crying out to God for help as one who can sense victory. The bitterness from the two verses at the beginning of the psalm is gone. When he was previously thinking that God couldn't help him because God had forsaken him. All of a sudden, David is calling out to God, acknowledging that God is actually there with him. He's suddenly no longer questioning if God had forgotten him. If God had hidden his face from him. But now he's talking to God, knowing that God will hear him and that God will be there to help him. Verse 3 shows David actually coming to his senses here. Because who bothers calling out to God if you believe he has forgotten you and forsaken you? Think about it. He said in verse 1, how long will you forget me? He's saying, God, you have forgotten me. But just for my own benefit, can you tell me how long this is going to go on? Forever? Lord, I also see that it's very clear that you've hidden your face from me. You've purposely forsaken me. So again, think about what he's acknowledging here. God, you've abandoned me. We're done. Right? Forever you've forgotten me. Forever you've hidden your face from me. It should end at verse number two. According to the logic of the first two verses and the rationale that David is using in those questions in the first two verses, verse two is where the psalm should end. But that shift in verse three shows us that he's starting to think a little clearer. Because again, if he truly believed what he's claiming about God in the first two questions... Why bother calling out to God for help in verse 3? Because if God truly forgot him, if God truly has forsaken him, there is no God to get help from. But he says, consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. It may not seem like a truly incredible verse, but what a powerful prayer as we see what David is really saying here. The bitterness from those first two verses is gone. Deep down, David knew that God hadn't forgotten him. And the shift here is David recognizing his own ignorance. I believe David is sensing victory here in verse number three. As he's regained some confidence in God and gotten the spring back in his step. And notice how David prayed, because in the middle of verse number three, we get a sign of David thinking clearly. Again, it says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. David prays, O Lord my God. The first two verses are all about David basically saying that God has cast him off uh, based on predicaments that he's finding himself in. But now David is drawing attention to the power and the presence of God because he's no longer looking at the circumstances, but he's now looking at God. David's heart returned to the conviction that God had promised him the throne of Israel is all powerful and that God is all powerful and always stands behind his promises. And I wish I could tell you that there is a very simple formula for how you can get out of feeling forgotten and how you can get out of feeling forsaken. And the truth is that it takes complete humility and a complete and sincere prayer. You need to be able to humbly come before God, recognizing your circumstances, but also surrendering yourself to completely give yourself to God's leading. And surrendering yourself to God's leading involves asking the Lord to help you see what you've been unable to see all along because you've been too focused on everything that hasn't worked out in your life. Only then will we be able to start catching a glimpse of what God's plans are for us and how he's actually going to work these things out. When David does this, he actually breaks out into song. This song of David in the last two verses is a, has kind of a threefold progression. Notice what we read in verses 5 and 6. He says, But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is a song of triumph. This is a song of victory. David started off by not seeing God, which was leading him to have feelings of helplessness, feeling defeated. But now he is seeing God through all of the circumstances, and he's now feeling victory. Our troubles can often cause us to avoid places where we could and would see God the most. Think about times when in your own life you were feeling discouraged, you were feeling depressed, you were feeling in despair. In most of those seasons, you didn't want to really do anything. Sometimes we don't even want to get out of bed. We don't want to be around people. We certainly don't want to be in church, right? 
Because who wants to be in church when they're feeling miserable? Who wants to be in church when they're feeling depressed? Who wants to be in church when they just don't feel that connection with God? People avoid church because they don't feel like they're in the right mindset. I've personally seen people who were strong pillars of the church virtually disappear when trouble hits them. People give all sorts of excuses as to why they're not in church and when they need to be in church the most. When life is going tough, that's when you need church the most. That's not the time to be taking a break from church. When trouble comes, that's when it is a wonderful thing to be a part of a faithful, Bible-believing church who is filled with a group of believers that will come alongside of you and help you and pray for you in your time of trouble. The devil, he's the only one that wants you taking a break from church. He's the only one that's going to tell you, you need to recharge. You need to get yourself in a better frame of mind before you can get back around these people before you can get back in church, before you can get back under the teaching of God's word. Let me tell you something. You're never going to get in a better frame of mind until you're under the teaching and the preaching of God's word. And so the devil's going to tell you everything that you think you need to hear that is actually, he, you're going to be convinced it's going to be beneficial to get you back to where you need to be. And reality is where you need to be is right here among the people of God hearing the word of God. Surround yourself with godly people and see how God will use them to bring that victory in your life. It's remarkable that David could say what he does here in verse number 5, considering he's still facing the same problem that we talked about in 1 Samuel chapter 30. God didn't change anything. He's still in the middle of it. Saul is still hunting him down. The odds are still stacked against him. His own people are still talking about stoning him. And yet he says, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. David is remembering God's past faithfulness. And as he thinks about the future and knows what God has promised him, he looks at the present situation as if it has already been overcome. As if God has already figured it out. And David is proclaiming in advance that God has delivered him. He is seeing God for who he is, which enables him to have such faith in the future that he speaks of his circumstance as if it is already in the past. It's a song of triumph, but it's also a song of thanksgiving. Look at verse number six once more as we close. He says, I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. One of the best ways to remain spiritually healthy is to constantly remind yourself of how good God has been to you personally. Rather than writing our blessings in sand and making monuments out of all of our hardships, which we're never going to forget, you need to do the opposite. If you're going to record any of your hardships, write them down in sand so when the water comes, it washes it all away and you forget about it entirely. Make monuments of the good things that God has done in your life so you have a constant reminder of who God is and how he's delivered you in the past. One year playing baseball, my, my team that I was on, we won the city championships. It was awesome. It was a highlight. And we all got these huge trophies. Every year we get a trophy, but you get this really nice trophy when you win the championship. And this trophy was, you know, head and shoulders nicer than any other trophy that I'd ever gotten. I remember I held on to this trophy for a long time. I'd put it up on a, a shelf that I had in my room. Any house we moved into, that had a spot for my trophies. And I, I loved that one trophy above all the rest because every time I looked at it, it reminded me of that awesome season that I had. It was the most exciting season of playing baseball that I ever had. And it reminded me of all the fun, reminded me of all the other players that were on the team and how well we did. It was a constant reminder of that exciting year that I had. Here in verse number six, David is going back to his trophy case and he's dusting off these trophies that he's had for so long of all the victories that God has brought in his life. And he says, I can't believe I've forgotten about all of these. Man, do you remember when God had me stand in front of that giant I can remember as if it was yesterday. Man, I was so close, I can even remember what he smelled like. I can remember feeling the smooth stones in my hand. I can remember swinging that sling. And all these memories start rushing back into the mind of David as he's dusting off these trophies and reminding himself of all the different things in his life that God has shown himself powerful and strong and all-sufficient. And he sings... 
I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. I'm sure David even thought about the time when he had to fight off a lion and a bear to protect the flock of sheep that he was protecting as a shepherd. As he thought about his present situation, David had to have known that God had dealt bountifully with him even as Saul was hunting him down. David had escaped death on numerous occasions and the only reason he was still alive and well was because God had providentially protected him. We may look to God and ask the same question that David asked. Lord, are you still there? Because it seems like I'm all alone. Have you forgotten me? Have you hid your face from me? What God is doing in our lives may not make a whole lot of sense right now. He may seem to be delaying and giving us any sort of answer or giving us clarity on something, but don't get irrational. Rather, turn your attention heavenward and put, pour out your heart and your soul to God and be willing to surrender to him unconditionally. The same God who has proven himself faithful to you in, the, in your past is the same God who is going to be there for you in the future. God may work on a timeline that is different than ours, but he is still working. God uses the tough times in our lives to build our character, to prepare us for something that we just can't see right now. So even if God delays, be encouraged. Because God is never late. God never loses control. God never makes mistakes. And if you feel like the light at the end of your tunnel has been turned out, just remember that you serve a God that can lighten your eyes and bring you peace. When God delays, do as David did. And you sing with joy to the Lord for how he has dealt bountifully with you. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing psalm. Thank you, Lord, for what it means to us individually and collectively. Lord, I, I know I am encouraged. And if I'm the only one that's encouraged by the, these words, Lord, then I'm, I'm truly thankful. But I pray that these words have touched others. Lord, if they're going through something right now, if they have just come through something, or if there's something around the corner, Lord, I pray that these words might be a comfort to them. Lord, that they might find that even when they're questioning and wondering where you are, Lord, that they might be able to look back on your past faithfulness. Lord, and rather than question, but sing out with joy because you have dealt bountifully with each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.